Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. All-inclusive vacations make life easy with endless eats, bottomless drinks, and never-ending fun. So booking an all-inclusive vacation should be easy too, right? That's where Apple Vacations comes in. Book your all-inclusive getaway with Apple Vacations and receive exclusive perks at select resorts. You'll find the best deals to Hyatt, Zalara, Riviera Maya in Mexico and enjoy a selection of exclusive nonstop vacation flights. Turn on easy mode at applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Visit applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information getting out of the military is really tough you go from being a part of a team to going solo and if you think about it when you join up uh, in the military you're taught to shoot move and communicate together as a team then you go to war and you fight you bleed you die together as a team then once your time in the military is over, everyone goes their separate ways. People retire. They go to different units, move to different bases. That sense of collective identity or team that was built through all of that training goes away in an instant. And so many of our men and women in uniform end up feeling alone. In some cases, you can end up feeling like an exile in your own country. You're not surrounded by your battle buddies anymore. And I see a lot of men and women get stuck at this point in their transition out of the military and really, really struggle. It's like they can't leave that part of them behind. And I, I totally get it. Being a warrior or your experience of war will never, ever go away. It never leaves your heart. It never leaves your mind. It's always with you in some way, shape or form. But so many have a difficult time saying that they have a difficult time saying, OK, that was one phase of my life. It was an important one. It's one that will be with me forever, but it's time to step into the next phase. And I think part of the reason for that is, is that a lot of former servicemen and women lack clarity on what their next mission is. You know, for me, it was writing the story of my troops, finishing a book. That book eventually became Outlaw Platoon. Now, don't get me wrong. When I first got out of the army, I struggled a lot. I languished. I wandered. I lacked clarity. I lacked focus. But eventually, I found my next mission in capturing the legacy of my troops. Once that was done, 
that led me to the next mission. Charity work with service dogs and helping our men and women come home from war. And the next mission was running for office, service to the nation once again. But you get the point. I jumped from one mission to the next to the next. And what helped me find and identify that mission was identifying what I felt like my purpose was. And to me, it was service. Service to others, service to God, service to family, to country. Once I found that purpose, that word, service, it was simply a matter of weaving my current mission into that purpose. Now, everyone's purpose won't always be the same, but once you find it, weave it into your personal mission. And I think it's from here that great things happen. Jack Carr, you know, who's my next guest, we talked about this and so much more. Jack Carr, if you don't already know, is a former Navy SEAL with 20 years of service, combat experience um, all over the world. And now he is a best-selling author of a lot of great, great thrillers. The first of which is a book that you probably know called The Terminal List. And that book was turned into an Amazon Prime series starring Chris Pratt, which is also incredible. You've got to go watch it. Um, but we talked about a lot of amazing things. Why Jack decided to join the Navy, but not just the Navy, the SEAL team community, the process of writing great stories, what makes a great hero and a great villain in the process of filming an Amazon Prime television show. So you get an incredible, unprecedented behind the scenes look of all of that from the guy who wrote it and helped produce it. The conversation that we have together is great. I hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Jack Carr. Well, 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 Jack Carr, welcome to Battleground, man. I got to tell you, it is uh, it is so great to see you. You've been kicking ass and taking names, and it's been an honor to watch, man. I'm exhausted, but uh, I've been watching you too. And that's what uh, what I love about doing these podcasts is that uh, we get to sit down. We turned off emails, so that's not beeping. Turned off phones, so that's not buzzing. And uh, we get to hang out and talk for a while and just uh, and just catch up. And just because of you know all this access we have these days, we're constantly working. There's no going home from the office because the office is right here with us time you know and people uh, i think people like us just are just driven to continue to always you know make things better continue to build um i don't know if that ever goes away i don't know if you ever finish building i get i'm, I'm thinking that that's not the case i don't think you ever finish building so we're going all the time which means that we don't take the time just to turn everything off and talk to each other so that's what i love about doing podcasts is we get to just hang out and catch up for a little bit i mean you're so right and you know what it means to to rock and roll, move out and draw fire. I mean, Jack, like 20 years in as, as a Navy SEAL, right? De- deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan, did some counterinsurgency training in the Philippines. Um, now you've got five books out, uh, a six yeah. on the way, right? Six Let me see. Ter- way, yeah. Terminal so list, true believer. Yeah. <laughs> in the closet upstairs and uh, get back to work. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, so you've done some 
incredible, incredible things, like both in the service to this country and after. And I guess I just wanted to start with why, why get into the military in the first place? You know, what, what propelled you to want to put on the uniform and put your life on the line for this country? Yeah, well, first off, I'll tell you what, my first day in uh, any of those countries was not like your first day oh. in, uh, <laughs> in country, you know. And, yeah, it was uh, a pretty rude awakening. <laughs> yeah, if anyone hasn't read uh, read your book, Outlaw Platoon, they need to uh, put this on pause, go get it right now and read it. <laughs> Thanks, um, Jack. That, that first day in your experience over there is just uh I mean, that's a like I recommend that book to everybody that asks me, hey, what should I read? And they always expect me to say a seal, you know, a seal book because there's a couple out there. And uh, and, you know, I say yours because that gives you I mean, it's just so visceral and it's just you getting thrown into this situation that you're, you know, there's a little bit of training, but not for what you I mean, you I don't know if you can really train for what you experienced, especially throughout your whole time there, especially that first day. I don't know if there's any amount of training that actually prepares you for something. Well, like. I mean, I, we weren't Navy SEALs, that's for sure. You know, <laughs> you know, we were just like I, I always tell people like the job before carrying a machine gun in Afghanistan for some of my men was high school shortstop. And so they went through their basic training, their AIT assigned to an infantry unit. Eight months later, we were downrange in Afghanistan getting our asses shot off every day. <laughs> and so, I mean, it, it and I know, by the way, I know you understand what this means, but it was just, you know, there's so many tough times when you're in combat. And so many negative experiences that's, that tend to stick with you for a lifetime, you know. Um, but watching America's sons and daughters in those life and death moments and, and having the privilege to lead them, Jack, it was just the honor of a lifetime. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, I mean, you stepped up from about zero training and led these guys. I mean, it's incredible. It's an incredible story. Uh, everybody, every American should read it because it gives you an appreciation of, uh, kind of what was sacrificed. And then you think of, Oh, it wasn't just like this guy. It was from the inception of this country up until today that people have been doing things like this and sacrificing for us so we could have these freedoms. So we could have these options and opportunities that we have today. And then maybe they'll take a little more thought and put that, time into studying the issues of the day so that when they go into that voting booth or before they retweet something, they just take a pause and think about what was sacrificed so that they could do those things. And then before they go on with the rest of the day, just put a little more thought into it because we're not really making those decisions when we go into that voting booth or you're retweeting that thing or whatever you're doing. Um, it's not for us. It's for our children and our grandchildren. Um, so the decisions we make today influence them and the, you know, the country for generations to come. So, um, but anyway, I did kind of hijack that question there. Uh, why did I join the military? Uh, you know, it was, I think it was innate. I think even if I didn't have a family history, I would have just been drawn to service. But uh, my grandfather served in World War II. He was uh, killed off Okinawa in 1945. He was a uh, Marine pilot. So he flew the Corsair, which is the one that had the gold wings. And, you know, right about that time that uh, I'm going through his medals and little box from in the attic and the silk maps that they used to give aviators back then. Because if you had paper maps and you hit the water, they just kind of, you know, disintegrate. But a silk map just gets wet and you still use it. Uh, so I had his wings. I had all these black and white photos of him, like standing on the wing of his Corsair and his whole squadron in the Pacific, you know, in front of their little hooch. And so I had all those things and I was just enamored with it. And um, also there was a show on called uh, Black Sheep Squadron. And uh, it's 
I was already watching it in reruns because it came out in the late 70s. I was watching it in the early 80s, uh, so it was already in syndication. Uh, I think it just ran for two two seasons, I think. But Robert Conrad portraying Pappy Boynton, who is a Marine Corps aviator in the Pacific in World War II, like my grandfather. And I'm watching this show. And of course, he's a little he I identify with him immediately because he's uh He's a hard drinker and he's a fighter. And I read his, I read his autobiography uh, and then I met him at an air show. And so I got to meet him uh, about a year before he passed away. So I got to shake his hand. I still have the, the book that he signed for me. Um, so I think it was just, you know, it was already in my blood, but also those things certainly helped. And now looking back, it highlights the uh, the power of popular culture um, and how important that is, especially for young men to look up to people like that. So I'm looking up to Pappy Boynton, portrayed by uh, by Robert Conrad. And I got to meet Robert Conrad, too, when I was a kid, which is crazy. Uh, so I got to meet both of them. But uh, but looking up to those heroes and what are they doing there? They're serving their country. They are sacrificing. They are leading. And so you're getting all even though you think you're just watching a show, uh, you're really getting some good values by watching a show like that. And then being naturally drawn to movies and other TV shows that had really protagonist main characters that had backgrounds that I wanted to have one day. And typically back then they served in Vietnam or, you know, they had a special operations backer. They were Marine snipers or they were Army Special Forces or uh, they were Navy SEALs. Or, and now they were like private investigators or they, you know, or whatever they were in the 80s and 90s. But they had this background of service, of sacrifice uh, and gaining this experience that allowed them to then do what they're doing in these. In I these mean, shows. so so this must have been so your your life now must be you're like living the dream, man. I mean, and I know having known you for a while, you have a deep affinity for for stories, film, TV, screenplays, and I mean, if anyone who follows you on social media knows that. And now having just you know got to be a part of an Amazon series for the Terminal List with Chris Pratt. By the way, by the way, man, I Melanie and I watched that show. And we were blown away by it. It's it's about as good as it gets in terms of you know making a book into the transition from book to to film can be a tough one, but you all did a damn good job. And in the attention to detail that went into the tactics, I was blown away because you know like as a military guy, like I feel like people like me and you are like watching things like that, even even for the slightest mistake on uniform yeah. or the way that they carry their rifle or the way that they rock their kit. I didn't see I didn't see any mistakes, man. And that's a that's a that's a testament to to you and the tactical advisors that you had on that show. Um, but let me let me just so I want to get into that show. I mean, because I, I loved it. But I have to ask you. So just because you sort of have an affinity for pop culture and military culture and a desire, maybe that was the catalyst for for why you decided to join uh, the military, the Navy. And then you wanted to not just join the Navy, but go into this into the SEALs. So mm. when you're in Buds, Jack, I mean, that takes a certain type of personality to make it through that. So not everybody that has like an affinity for the movies and and, and maybe they saw Navy SEALs portrayed in a movie that they like and they want to be a Navy SEAL. Most of those dudes don't make it through. And I wonder, like, what are you thinking in those moments when you're laying with what 150 pound log on your chest in the middle of freezing cold water in, in the Pacific, <laughs> like a, a sugar cookie. Like what is the mindset that you have to have that makes it through a moment like that? Cause it sure as heck just not, not an interested military film. Like there's something, there's something in the core of who you are that drove you to complete buds 
And not only that, drove you to be an exceptional SEAL sniper and then an officer, platoon commander in the SEALs. So what's your secret, man? How'd you yeah, do it? I mean, it's well, I guess there's a little bit uh, of um, just not being able to fail because you've told people <laughs> since you're seven years old that you're going to do this. <laughs> you, can't, you can't go wandering home <laughs> after the first week, you know, and say you didn't make it after all these years of saying this is exactly what you're going to do. So, uh, so I'm sure that played in a little bit, um, but you know, it's a test. And I think from the beginning of time, um, people, young men in particular have been drawn to some sort of a test, some sort of a crucible. And most societies had something in place where you had to, in order to join that tribe, to become a part of that society, to be accepted by that society, uh, you had to go through something. And I think that's still in us, even though it's not part of, let's say your trajectory or your curriculum to become a citizen, uh, it's still in there. It's still in that DNA. And so that's why so many people are drawn to Marine Corps boot camp in particular. Uh, that's, that's a big one. Uh, BUDS, uh, Q course, whatever it is, some sort of a test. Um, and I think that's just, that's just in the DNA because it's natural to test yourself at a certain age. And whether that's 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, like somewhere in there, you feel this draw. And I think most people feel it. And then a lot of people repress it because today, oh, you can just do whatever, whatever you want. You're accepted no matter what. Well, back in the back in the day, you weren't accepted until you did X, Y, or Z, until you proved that you could become a part of this society because you needed to add value to it. Because if you didn't, guess what? You were not going to continue on. Your tribe was not going to continue on. Uh, bloodline was not going to continue on. You would be erased from the earth. Uh, so if you were not good at hunting, putting food on the table, and the fighting, uh, guess what? You were not long for this earth. And that's still in us somewhere. So I think that was a lot of it. That's what drew me. Popular culture influenced it. My grandfather uh, influenced it, who didn't make it home. Uh, so all this stuff was in me, and I was just looking what is it? What is that? What is that test? And then I found out what seals were early on when I was seven. And it was just like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to test myself. I mean, you, you talk about warrior cultures and the idea that I do believe, you know, I was just talking about this last night, actually, Jack, that that warriors do have a form of collective unconscious, you know, that that is passed down from one generation to the next. And the idea that all societies have to protect themselves, you know, and all societies you know, train their warriors or warriors go to fight and bleed for, for their respective country. And then they come home and they're propped up into the role of, of elder warriors and the role of the elder warriors to help educate political leaders on the direction of their respective nations, but also what it means to go to war should you have to make that tough decision, you know, and the SEALs in particular, I mean, I think the U.S. military is unique in so many ways, but the SEALs have a culture that really is, is, is kind of unbelievable. And I, I think about the first time that we met, do you remember that? Well, I do on the, on the bus, Chris Kyle's uh, memorial. I know, man. I mean, yeah, we sat next to each other on the bus. That, I, that was, I know what you, you, I'm sitting there in a suit. I'd been out of the military for a few years at that point, And you were still in, you were still in your yeah. uniform. We just got sat together on the bus compl completely, completely, it was completely yeah. random. And do you remember driving, you know, down that Texas highway with the thousands upon thousands of people standing on the side of the roads and the bridges that we would go under with the big fire trucks and the cranes and the American flag hanging from them and people waving like little American flags and stuff? Yeah. I remember that moment and I remember watching the SEAL team community rally around one of their fallen 
and and it, it it struck me, and obviously it's 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 something that stuck with me into this day, and obviously meeting you as well. Um, I, I ended up meeting Chris Kyle. Like I didn't serve with him. I never I knew him when we were in uniform, but his book was published by the same publishing house as, as Outlaw Platoon, and his book came out in January, I think, in 2012. My book came out in February or March or something like that. I can't quite remember, but. He and I became friends through that process because you go from, you know, SEAL or nothing burger army infantry captain out of the military, not really sure what the hell you want to do with your life. All of a sudden you're publishing a book and it's like drinking from a fire hose. So we leaned on each other in those moments and I think we became friends. And when we lost him a year later, obviously it was a, it was a devastating loss uh, for the country, but certainly the SEAL team community. And I saw it down there, you know, as, as look I'm an army guy, you know, I served and worked with the SEALs um, during my time in active service, but I was never really exposed to their culture until that moment and sitting there on that bus next to you and watching how you respected one of your fallen at his funeral and, and slamming the trident into the coffin, you know, with the palm of your hand. And I was blown away by that man. And, and, and frankly, I, I was blown away by by you and and some of the questions that you were asking, because I think if I remember correctly, Jack, you were transitioning or about to transition out at that point. I'd made my decision at that you point. Uh, <laughs> You'd made, I don't know if I told anybody yet, but uh, my decision was made. Uh, I think I was at Bud's at the time. I was a operations officer. Oh, that's right. Buds. That's right. So, yeah. So my time leading guys tactically downrange had ended about a year earlier. Um, and after that, you know, if you stay in, uh, you know, people look to colonels and, uh, uh, you know, generals and, you know, they, well, you know, you're as an O four, that's going to be, if you're lucky, that's the last time you're going to do ooh, tactical operations, leading guys on the battlefield. Uh, after that, you're going to go to a staff job somewhere, uh, maybe another one Then you're going to circle back around and be a team CEO, uh, commanding officer, which sounds, um, sounds great, but, uh, in reality, probably, it probably isn't like a staff officer, right? <laughs> yeah, you're a manager at that point. I mean, yeah. regardless of, you know, what you did in the past, you're now a manager, but you're still a leader. Uh, you still set the tone uh, and all that stuff, but you're not going out kicking indoors with the guys, nor do they want you to, because now you've been in staff jobs for the last four years. And uh, and probably if you're an officer and weren't enlisted first, maybe uh, and didn't augment your training on the side, uh, you're not a gun guy, uh, you know, they don't want you out there on the battlefield with them. You stay back in that tactical operations center, allocate assets, make sure that there's air cover overhead. You know, you, you manage that talk, that tactical operations center. Um, and that's not what I came in to do. So I was, no. I, was uh, <laughs> I was good. I was at the end of my time tactically having been enlisted first and then an officer had a nice run. I uh, got very lucky uh, coming in when I did September 11th happening, you know, when it did and uh, just got some experience because of that timing. But um Point being, uh, yeah, it was, it was time to time to get out. And plus, my family needed me, as you know. We have a special needs middle child. Uh, my wife was taking care of him because I'm downrange or I'm training, and that pendulum, as you know, has to be on the side of the team of the guys because that's what you owe them. That's what you owe their families, the country, the mission, and that's just how it is. That has to come first. Um, and my wife understood that. I we articulated that to one another. Her understanding, me being able to uh, articulate that, and she got it. Uh, so it wasn't like why. Are, why does the team always come first? Because she knew why the team had to come first, because those guys' lives are in your hands downrange. Um, so uh, so that's just how it how it was. But when I got back from that deployment, 
look around, take a breath here, look at towards the future. Okay, now it's time to get out. Still had a few years left in, um, but uh, but it was time to get out. So when I met you, I had made that decision. I don't know if I told anybody <laughs> yet, but uh, really as soon as I got back and- I could sense it, you know? I could <laughs> sense it with like, you know, have, having been in those shoes myself, I, I, I feel like from one warrior to another, we can- we can sense when when it's about time to hang the rifle over the mantle, so to speak. Yeah, and, exactly. but what I'm, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. So, like, for you, Jack, when you decided to make that transition, you know, what was that like for you? Because so many men and women in uniform, they join and they feel, you know, a deep seated sense of service to their country, and then they join the military and then they train as a, you know, they learn to train as a collective to, to shoot, move and communicate together as a team. And then sometimes you go to war and, you know, you fight, bleed and you die together as a team. And then you come home and all of a sudden, you know, you get You decide to get out, retire, PCS, move back home, whatever. And all of a sudden you're on your own. And so it sort of runs contrary to everything that you're trained to do and be a part of a team. So, so what was that transition like for you? And, and really how I, I knew in the moments when we had those conversations that, that you were going to be fine because you, I feel like you were laser focused on, on the next thing, Jack, but, but what was that transition like for you and how did you identify what exactly was you wanted to do? You know, and I, 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 I'm curious what that journey was like. Yeah, I think I was lucky in that I knew what I wanted to do. And uh, that from a very early age, I know I wanted to serve my country in uniform, specifically as a SEAL. And then I knew that after that, I was going to write thrillers because I'm reading all these books growing up. I'm reading Nelson DeMille and David Morrell and AJ Quinnell and JC Pollock and Mark Olden and Stephen Hunter and Tom Clancy. And I'm reading all these guys. Uh, and cause I'm figuring, okay, if uh, Nelson DeMille says something about the military or David Morrell says something about seals or special forces, they must have, have they must have some inside information. Cause back then you couldn't just jump online and check it. Um, you had to read the nonfiction stuff of which there wasn't very much in the early eighties. And then there were these thrillers that had these protagonists with backgrounds that I wanted in real life. So I'm reading, reading these things and I'm loving them and I'm reading them also through the lens of like a childhood type innocence uh, in that I haven't built up any cynicism really yet. You know, it's sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. Um, and uh, I don't I don't have that. Any, there's less filters, I guess. Uh, and I'm just enjoying them. I'm enjoying the magic of being in these pages. And so I just knew, hey, when I get out, I'm going to write these thrillers and uh I'm going to be number one New York Times bestselling author and it's going to be made in a movie or whatever else. And I just thought that's just that's my what I'm going to do. And I didn't waste any bandwidth worried about that not happening or worried about not making it into the SEAL teams. Like I just knew this is difficult. That's why I want to do it. Um, and then I'm not going to worry about what if I don't make it or what about 80 percent of people don't make it? Oh, geez. No, because that's I've just wasted three seconds right there where I wasn't doing a push up, wasn't doing a pull up, wasn't reading something about warfare to make myself a better operator in the future. Um, so I didn't really worry about that sort of thing. So I was lucky in that I knew what I wanted to do. But then also when I was in that position at Bud's at SEAL training, when I met you, uh, I saw a lot of people transition out. And you didn't really see that in the regular teams because you're so focused on training up for deployment. Um, so someone gets out. 
they're essentially they're just gone. Um, but at buds, now you're taking a breath. You're not taking a break, you're taking a breath. Uh, and then as the operations officer, which is like for people listening, it's like the COO of a company, like day-to-day type operations. Uh, the CEO would be like the CEO of a company. But um, I'm getting calls from people saying, hey, buddy, uh, you know, can I bring my, my new boss in? He wants a tour of the thing. You know, he saw the movie or whatever. Hey, no problem. And uh, so I was setting up all these calls. But as I was doing that, uh, I was like, these guys can't let it go. They've transitioned out, they have, they have new lives, but they can't let this go. And by letting go, I don't mean like forgetting about it and starting anew. No, it's a foundation, just like anything else in life, no matter what, whether you're in the military or not, you know, your experience forms this foundation upon which to build going forward. Um, I saw a lot of people that had a hard time, like pulling that foot out of this world of special operations and moving forward. Uh, so I just recognized that and uh, realized, hey, when I get out, uh, we're gonna make a physical and psychological break by moving somewhere else. So we moved to Park City, Utah from Coronado, California. Um, so it's going to be physical and psychological. And I think a lot of people stay behind in some of these same areas. Um, see the, see, see, see go to restaurants are the same bars. Totally. Are the same. I get Schools it. Yeah. The same. Like all these, re- you're in your, so you're seeing people and you, it's just this touch point that you continue to have that maybe might be not be so healthy if you are trying to move forward and build on that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So a lot of guys get out, they try to come back in or they go contract or they, uh, they're not sure what they want to do and they start floating around a little bit. Um, so I was lucky and that I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And also I was naive. I didn't really realize how hard it was. I just, uh, you know, people tell you and they look at you when you tell them you want to be a SEAL, they give you a look like, uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, same thing you say yeah. when you're an author. It's like that same I thing. Know. <laughs> I know. Exact same look. And uh, so I just use that as as fuel. Yeah, you're surrounded by people. I mean, seriously, that that is so true, Jack. Like you're surrounded by people who tell you that you can't do something, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I, I think as you spoke, man, I'm just sitting here like thinking that's when you braid your why, your purpose with a mission, right? Because when you're in, you have a mission. Right. You're clearly focused on where you have to go on the horizon and getting your people there. You know, and when men and women get out of the military, they don't have that mission. And sometimes they languish and they wander and they're not really sure what they're supposed to do. So I think it's but but it's twofold. Right. Like it's not just about having another mission. It's about braiding that mission with your life's purpose. That really is the rocket fuel, man. And I feel like that's the sweet spot. That's the magic sauce. And I feel like you tapped into that. And I love the idea of of making a psychological and a physical break. Like you're you're leaving warrior culture. You're not leaving it behind entirely. It's forever going to be a part of who you are. But yeah, but you're taking that mindset and that mission and that purpose and moving somewhere else and figuring out what you want to do. And for you, it, it it. writing books, man. And so yeah. when you wrote That's the terminal cool. list, like, like where did, where the hell did that story come from? Because <laughs> it, because it's, I think it's like, it's when you're a creative person, right? I mean, not all military guys are creative, super creative people, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's writing a story is an art form. It's not dissimilar to like painting a painting or something like that. Yeah, no, you know? exactly, and, exactly right. And when you craft a story, I think that like the simplest stories are the most profound and, mm. and the ones that stick with us 
the longest. Like, like I read the most dangerous game when I was a kid, and I remember yeah. that yeah. every aspect of that story. Yeah, even today, oh, and oh, it yeah. was it was just so simple, but it was beautiful in that as oh, well. Yeah. Oh, and the yeah. terminal list has that that type of a feel to me. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, that most dangerous game informed my third novel, Savage Son, which is actually the one I wanted to write first. But I knew the characters weren't developed enough to start with that one. So I knew I had to come out with the terminal list first. But uh, when you're talking about mission and purpose, I think there's there's things that I that I recognized while I was at Buds by seeing people transition, uh, knowing exactly what I wanted to do. But I think it's about mission and passion. So my mission is to take care of my family and ensure that our special needs middle child has a lifetime of full-time care. That's my mission. My passion is writing. So putting those together gave me a purpose going forward. So that's how I thought of it while I was still sitting there at my desk. And uh, and in the SEAL teams, I was like, I kind of felt like, remember in uh, uh, Spy Game with Brad Pitt when um, uh, when Robert Redford's trying to recruit him? So he of puts course. him in the yeah. position. He's yeah. Like, yeah. He's just yeah. like, hey, that's, that's what I felt like. I was sitting there at the desk and I'm like, oh, gosh. I'm like, I should probably stick it out for like a couple more years here. I'm like, uh, and, uh, and, and use this time. Uh, and then I got to drop my papers. And for those who have been in the military, you know, when you drop your papers, you kind of go into another pile, uh, like, oh geez. Okay. This guy's getting out. Uh, okay. So now he's not on this track anymore. Uh, now you go in this pile where your job becomes to get out of this gigantic bureaucracy. So get read out of secret programs, uh, go to dental, go to medical, yeah, your dental. Little, uh, <laughs> transition of whatever pro- thing, whatever you have to like get signed off and checked off. But cause it's the military, you go to these places at first and stand in a long line to make your appointment to then come back and actually get the class go to dental go to medical and then come back for whatever follow-ups so it seems like it would take like three days it's kind of like jump school uh you know it's uh, it's three days crammed into three weeks is uh, is is uh, is jump school um uh, but same thing with getting out is kind of how i felt so i had some time to to work on what i wanted to do and i knew exactly what that was and i so i started by writing out like 10, 15, no, no, sorry, uh, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 different one page executive summaries uh, of different different uh, themes and different storylines. And I really want to start with Savage Sun because of the most dangerous game. And really, it's the most dangerous game. It's First Blood. It's uh, Rogue Mail. I love that. I love all <laughs> those are all so good right there. Those all informed that third story of Savage Sun. So I wanted to start there, but I knew I couldn't jump in right there. So I started writing the terminal list. And uh, so I just knew exactly what it was. But was what really helped me is that from such an early age, I knew what I wanted to do. So I had built that foundation on that creative side by reading all those masters. And back then I was just, I was just reading them for fun. I was just, I was just this magic from these pages. I love these stories, knew what I was going to do that. But I was really giving myself an early education in the art of storytelling um, without going back today, reading one of these classics from 1983, but now I have this, all these barriers in place and I have all this cynicism built up and I have, I have this life experience. Yeah, you've so, lived a little bit. Yeah. Then, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Lived yet. You know, I was just like, oh, this is amazing as I'm going through these books. So I think that really helped uh, in in making that transition because because uh, I had that education and it wasn't an education of sitting in a class. It was an education from the fans perspective. Uh, and now here I am now applying both the, the nonfiction that I've read my whole life, studying warfare, the experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I can bring those emotions and feelings. I don't have to go find a sniper from Ramadi in, let's say, 2005, 2006, sit down with them and then ask them, hey, what, did, what was it like to, to be in a hide site? And then. 
and pull the trigger or whatever. Like, okay. And then I write down those notes of those answers. And then maybe uh, I filter those through other interviews that I've done, books that I've read, movies that I've seen, and then apply it to a fictional narrative. No, it's all coming from my heart and soul directly onto the page, what that felt like or what it felt like to get ambushed in, in Baghdad. And, and, uh, and then I can take that and apply it to an ambush that my character is in Los Angeles, California. And even though it's totally made up, the feelings and emotions are real. And it's also very therapeutic to do that, um, both on a personal level. And then also when you're dealing with bureaucracies, uh, when you're looking up at these senior level officials, leader, leaders in quotes, elected representatives, military officials, whatever it might be, who really didn't understand the nature of the conflict in which we were engaged. And they had 20 years to figure it out. Uh, we had examples from the, the Soviet experience from 79 to 89, in Afghanistan in particular. Uh, we didn't even have to go back to the three British incursions in the 1800s, early 1900s, or to Genghis Khan or to Alexander the Great. We had more recent experience, and then we had our own. And then we neglected to take those lessons and apply them going forward as wisdom. Uh, we kept reliving the same year. We kept changing our focus. Now it's a war on opium. Now it's this. Now it's that. Uh, and we spent 20 years there. Um, and that's, that's a tough thing to, to deal with, especially, as you know, especially when we've I, lost friends down there. I mean, uh, Jack, so I get to weave that into the novels. Uh, and once again, very therapeutic. Well, I, you know, you're the Afghan war and the withdrawal from Afghanistan is in the news today. Um, and I have to tell you, every time I see it, it just, it just pisses me off, man. And the idea that over a year later, after the, the disastrous extraction, if you even want to call it that, from Afghanistan. A year later, there are still Americans trapped there. Um, and and, and this, is, this is why, like, when we talk about the role of the elder warrior and the, the idea that, that people who have seen the fight up close and personal come home and educate our policymakers on what it means to go to war and what that sacrifice will look like on the opposite end, because the reality is, is like, when, when the war is over to them, the war is just beginning for people like us and so many of the tens of thousands of Americans, sons and daughters who fought in those conflicts. And that's why, to me, if our policymakers, and this isn't political, Democrat or Republican, if if we're sending America's sons and daughters into the fight, well, we have a moral obligation as a country to win with a clear-cut mission and mm -hmm. end state. And that clearly did not happen in Afghanistan. And I remember you and I actually, when I was in the thick of the Senate run back in 2021, you and I actually texted about the Afghan withdrawal and what was going on there and how disastrous it was because the crazy predicament that guys like you and I found ourselves in, not just me and you, guys like like Jay Redman and, and Tim Kennedy and Nick Palmashano, they, they found themselves over in Afghanistan, boots on the ground, a week after the suicide bomber attack in Afghanistan tried to evac our allies. And I remember thinking to myself, well, how the hell does that fall to private citizens? Like, if that's not an indictment on big government, I don't I don't know what is. I don't know what is. Um, and I remember in those moments, like I actually wrote to Jen Psaki, who is who was then the White House press secretary. And to her credit, she wrote me back um, mm -hmm. about passing, you know, th the information of people who were my interpreters in Afghanistan, who, of course, when Afghanistan collapsed in on itself like a dying star, they all wrote to me immediately like, please help. And I just you 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 ask yourself, Jack, you know, I know I have like, what the hell was it all for if 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 it was just going to collapse on itself like that? Do you find yourself asking those questions? 
Oh, I certainly, certainly do. And it's a tough one to answer. And I think I try to do that in the pages of these novels, even though they're, they're fiction. Um, it allows me a chance to explore some of those questions. Um, and then you can do something about it. That's the great thing about fiction, about commercial fiction, about movies, uh, because things you can't really uh, impact in real life. Well, guess what? You can have resolution in the pages of a thriller or by sitting down and watching a TV show or in a movie. Uh, and so you get this sense of satisfaction from being able to see something come full circle and having the good guy win. Um, and that doesn't necessarily happen in, in real life. Um, but I do think about it because of so many, just because of that sacrifice, 20 years of sacrifice. And this is how it ends up. You had 20 years to prepare for this moment. And that's why the American citizen who has no touch point with the military, never read a book on strategy or tactics or geopolitics could look at what happened and say, because they have common sense and say, wait, what are we doing here? Why did we give up this place called Bagram that seems like uh, we had some standoff distance? Maybe we owned the terrain. We had an airfield. And then exactly. you <laughs> exactly. in this place in Kabul where you have these mass crowds that are, I mean, you don't need to have, you don't need to know anything about tactics, anything about geopolitics, nothing about the military. <laughs> and you can look at it with common sense. Exactly. And, uh, that's what one of the things that George Marshall did in uh, the run up to World War II, during World War II, he had a list of criteria for leaders. And one of those things was having common sense. Uh, Karl von Clausewitz, same thing. He said the most important, uh, the most important attribute of a battlefield leader was to have common sense. Uh, and that's why you could look at this, apply common sense to the withdrawal, to the whole 20 years, but let's just talk specifically about the withdrawal. And that's why people were so upset about this. Um, and, and yeah, America's sons and daughters, once again, pay the price by being put there by people who didn't understand the nature of the conflict that which we were in which we were engaged uh, stand up to bad decisions um i don't know it's just so hard to even contemplate it makes me so angry i know <laughs> i i could tell man and like this is this is why you talk about like the war starting for men and women when they come home when the conflict is over you've been in those shoes you know what that's like and we talked about the importance of culture Right. And its impact on our society. What I appreciate about, you know, not just your books, but also the the Terminal List Amazon show mm -hmm. was that it portrays our servicemen and women in a strong, positive light. There's this perception in our in American culture of when warriors come home, like we're all broken. And you mm -hmm. even see that reflected in our statues, like of 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 warriors who are like, looking forlorn up at the sky like we're somehow lost. Um, we're not. We still have a mission to protect this country when, when we come home. And what I like about the terminal list is how it shapes our culture. And not just that, how it, how it shows post-traumatic stress and what soldiers grapple with and how it's not a debilitating disorder. Post-traumatic, you could have post-traumatic stress from a car accident. Yeah. Um, but it shows the, you know, I think in a positive way that our warriors are strong and will always be strong, that there is a distinction between those who are boots on the ground doing the fighting and the bureaucracy that sends them to war. Um, and I just like that it shows some of the struggles that our men and women have when they come home, because it's so important. You know, most of this country, Jack, like, as you said, like who maybe don't have a touch point with the military, they don't know what it's like to put that uniform on and defend freedom. And and that's not an indictment. I think that's a strength of our country. The fact that most Americans are only concerned 
they, they have freedom. They can live their life the way that they want. I mean, it's, it's sort of like the double-edged sword of freedom is that you know Americans enjoy their freedom and with every passing generation – maybe get further and further away from the warriors who protect it, right? Um, Or you don't have to invest as much as a generation prior. uh, Exactly. That generation before that, alone before that. Um, So when you invest in something, then you have ownership in it. And uh, I think that's why Israel is so strong, because there is that national service. They've invested. They don't have a choice. You're, you're investing in this thing. Um, and if we had to invest in this country right now, I think I think that's why we're headed. Um, well, I hate to be I try to remain hopeful, especially publicly. I, uh, of course, because of the direction that we're headed right now is because <laughs> most people have not had to invest in this. It's been a take. Uh, it's been a take from government, take from society. It's been um, uh, benefiting from the sacrifice of generations past so that you can have these choices, but you haven't had to invest in it yet uh, unless you join the military or you do something else like that where you're investing in this thing called America. Um, so I think there is huge benefits toward that investment, uh, whether it's serving the military or something else. But uh, but that investment piece, I think that's a, that's an important part of, uh, of being a citizen is investing because you got to make it better. You add value to the society instead of just take, take, take. And now I think there's a large portion that don't re- recognize that. And if you studied your history, that's why if you didn't serve in the military or do something else, studying your history is so important because then that gives you an appreciation for what you have today. Uh, and I think it helps build resiliency also because you're reading about these things. Oh my gosh, look what these people had to do uh, back then. I don't have to do that today. Wow, this that, that's incredible. I'm I'm grateful that they did that. So, but without that reading, without that study, without that understanding of history, you're just going from one thing to another. And now it's this that you're competing with, which is just 15 seconds here, 15 seconds here, a phone. There's so many distractions that keep you from opening a book, studying that history, uh, being able to apply it to the situations and the issues of today. Um, so it's a, it's a, we're in a tough position as a I society. Mean, I think you're right, man. I mean, if you th- if you think. If you walked into a neighborhood at the height of World War II, you'd be hard you'd be hard pressed to meet somebody who's not affected mm-hmm. by the fight, who did not have somebody, a family that did not have somebody directly involved, whether it's someone downrange doing the fighting deployed or someone at home working to support the mission. And I feel like with every passing generation, a smaller percentage of Americans have volunteered to serve this country. Um, to now it's like something like 0.4% of the country has served during the longest period of war in our nation's history, Jack. And I think that's why it's, you know, books like yours, shows like the terminal list are so important. And you want to talk about an investment in, in our country, Chris Pratt, man, and how he invested into the role of, of James Reese, man. Like mm-hmm. you could tell he was, how committed was he? Because my read was like he was in it, he He's was in right. it, he believed in it. Um, he was he was a true believer, That's and it. he was That's a savage it. son in the role <laughs> itself. Yeah, he crushed and, it. He crushed it. I mean, I think he did great, man. Yeah, I mean, he has his best friend is Jared Shaw, who gave Chris the book before it even hit shelves. So he has this touch point with the military when he did Zero Dark Thirty. He came down to Buds, ran the obstacle course, you know, met the guys and and all his family history in the military. So he was he was all in to this role, all into this project. And uh, yeah, uh, I didn't realize how when we were working on the scripts, 
how much was going to be on his shoulders. I just, because I didn't have, this is my first experience. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Now that I see how much he had to do, I'm like, oh, and he never complained, not once. And it was very physical, but it's not just the physical side. It's showing up every day and setting the tone for the whole rest of the, for 350 people on set every day. And uh, so he always, and he's a wonderful person. So he's just himself. Um, but there's a lot asked of him uh, personally and professionally. I was, I was watching, I was watching you stalk him and I'm like, Oh my God, (laughs) is that Jack in that episode? Look at him moving with it. If this was real life, things would go down a little differently here. You just got capped. You got capped in the car. I know. Like he throws the car in reverse and the operator. Yeah. Maybe I was just uh, knocked out or something. (laughs) You got a rep to keep here, man. (laughs) I know. Uh, But it was, what was really cool. So I wanted to do the car crash uh, when he backs into me, uh, but they wouldn't let me do it. So they had a stuntman do it. But the guy who doubled me, uh, Mick Rogers, who doubled Mel Gibson and lethal weapon, jumping off the tower, handcuffed in a business guy in that movie. So I got to be doubled by like one lethal weapon was a hugely influential movie growing up for me. Dude, that's awesome. Um, yeah, so that was that was great. And then uh, got to be in the car. And it was really cool to see how they do it, like how they put those bullet holes in, is they have these little mortars that are hidden behind the dash. And so they send a little ball bearing up into the glass from the car. So even if someone's wow. shooting in, it's sending a ball bearing so it shatters the glass. How? How do they do that? Is it like a, it's like almost like a claymore. Yeah, someone's got the, you know, remote firing device over here on an iPad and Chris is firing, they hit it, boom, boom, boom. And it's, deesh, deesh, deesh. so I have the sunglasses on there so the glass doesn't come back in your face, you know, from, from doing that. Uh, but that was pretty cool to see kind of the movie magic, the Hollywood hot sauce. Um, but, uh, you know, we tried to make it, have this, this authentic touch, touch point with everything that we did. And of course there is going to be, you know, some Hollywood here or there, but really we were trying to capture the mindset of a modern day warrior. Um, so that all came back to that, to that authentic touch so that you could sit down. And if you are watching it uh, with your experience, you could sit there on the couch, have a beer and you're watching this thing and say, Oh man, these guys put in the work. You know, even if there's things here and oh. there that might not be, you know, yeah, uh, that, that was clear. They put in the work and they tried to get it as authentic and as real as possible. And the actors put in the work and Taylor Kitsch is rocking that shotgun and he's really he's trying to get it right. He's putting in all this time, energy and effort trying to figure this thing out and working with another SEAL buddy of mine, Raymond Doza, who does uh, Hollywood uh, technical advising now. Um, but these guys, they put in the effort and they put in the work. And it had everything, Jack. Like the terminalists had everything. They had the had the beach assault where in Syria, right? When they're in like the, yeah. the sewers, like the, the just yeah. the way that it like what I'm looking for is like how's the team moving, right? Yeah. I, like just the tactical movements were were spot on. It had escape and evasion where James Reese gets capped in the shoulder and then he's running yeah. through the mountain and falling off the mountain. Little nod uh, to first blood. Yeah, I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew it. I knew. Yeah. In the scene in the, in the uh, episode before that, in episode five. Uh, yeah. But in that first one, you got a bunch of SEAL friends to come in and actually play SEALs. It's uh, awesome. Show. So you didn't have to teach the movement. Uh, they were moving as a team through there because they've done it before. So I mean, it was clear. And then you even had military operations. You had Mount military operations on urban terrain. Like it had a little bit of, of everything. And and I think in addition to all of that, it had a story. And, and when I talked about s- stories that are the elegant and, and simple, it's like mm-hmm. you always knew exactly what James Reese was doing at any given moment. He had a list. It was right there. And at any point in time in the story, anytime there was an ancillary story with with ancillary characters and maybe maybe like James Reese isn't on the scene, you knew that he was moving out in support of that mission with that list. And that, that's what I think I liked 
about that story the most is that you always knew exactly what the main character was doing, even when he wasn't on the page, even when he wasn't nice. on the screen, you know? Nice. Love it. Love and, it. Yeah, I wrote it in, so you could grab it very intentionally. I wanted to write it at a couple different levels. Um, I wanted someone to like walk through the airport, see it in a Hudson News, grab it off the shelf and have a great thing. You know, grabbing just a spy thriller, or political thriller and have a good experience reading it. And OK, you escape for a few hours on your flight or on the beach and awesome. Um, but then a little deeper, it's about uh, really someone who becomes the insurgent, who becomes the terrorist, uh, becomes the person that he'd been fighting. And the time I wrote it was 16 years at war, but let's say 20 now. So he becomes the person that he'd been fighting for those. Last. He makes this transition and I do that through, well, having him have to raid the armory of his enemy. So he goes in, in the book uh, and we had a scene like that in the show. We had to take it out for time purposes, but, um, but he goes in there and he's taking all the weapons from the armory. So he's essentially stealing those weapons to go use them in his, in this mission, in this, uh, uh, this, this mission of vengeance. Uh, his hair starts getting longer. His beard starts growing. We kept that part in the show. So he kept his beard and his hair real time throughout the whole series to show that he's now he's transitioning into this, into this insurgent goes from having a uniform to not having a uniform. Like all those, all those things visually. So even if you don't really recognize that, it's still subliminal. It's still in the novel. It's of still course. In the show. I mean, th those are the best types of main. Uh, you talk about the hero's journey, right? And th to me, those are the heroes that that could also be the villain at any given time if maybe he was one degree more to the. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and the same thing with villains. Like villains that, like where you where yeah. you understand what the villain is doing in the mission yeah. of the antagonist. Right. Yeah. And in the back of your mind, maybe you even find yourself agreeing with it, with that mission, but yeah. maybe disagreeing with his methods. Those right. are the it's best. So much more fun that way. Yes, so totally. Totally. Confusion almost, uh, you know, for yep. a little bit, make them question a couple of things here and there. Um, but even that in the, and then the third level, really that I wanted that maybe people will recognize, maybe not, is that this is someone who's bringing the wars from Iraq and Afghanistan back to the front doors of people who have been sending young men and women to their deaths for 20 years. So there's three different levels that I was thinking as I wrote that. And I wanted to have those in there, uh, whether people recognize it or not. And some people that will definitely recognize those three different levels. I mean, I love that you drew the distinction between the warfighter and, and the suits that are sending people to war. You know, that that's that's so important. And some right? of those suits wear uniforms. Exactly. Ex no doubt about it. And I mean, people don't realize GI government issue, you know, um, yeah, you the military was not too excited to help out with this production. Uh, yeah, we're not going to help with it. Uh, that's for sure. Well, you didn't uh, need it, man. Not. It was locked on target. I thought it was great. And, and so, okay. Right. So I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to respect your time, but I, I tell me how, I know that being a father and being a husband is, is so unbelievably important to you. And I think that's part of the reason why you serve this country for so long, because you want to make sure that, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you want to protect them and make sure that they inherit a country that's free. Jack, I know that about you. Now you're out and you're living the dream. How has this sort of new mission, new purpose, new career path How's your family handling all that, man? And like you said, I know you have a special needs kid and everything that you do is in support of taking care of that little guy, you know? And yeah. so how has your family reacted to all this? 
Yeah, well, well first off, uh, the kids are completely unimpressed by anything. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know how it goes, right? I do uh, know how that goes. Exactly. I t- t- totally how that goes. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's exactly the same uh, position you're in as far as that stuff goes. They were impressed for a little bit, like when Chris Pratt does a FaceTime with them or does, oh, records yeah. a, a video and then sends it to me and I can show them like for a happy They're birthday. like, whoa, that's Star-Lord. Yeah. Star- exactly. For like three seconds maybe and then it's back to, okay, you know, being, <laughs> just being dad and being really unimpressive. Uh, especially with a 17-year-old uh, in the house now. So it's 17, 14, and 12 are the ages now. Um, so yeah, first off, everybody's completely unimpressed by by any of this. Um, but, uh, you know, I, what I, I think like for my wife, I think it was a little bit of, um, not, I guess both of us didn't realize it was a startup. Like I thought it was just writing. And I thought being an author is only writing. And that's my impression. Reading all those books growing up, you don't realize that there's more behind it. And back then there wasn't as much that you could do uh, because there weren't these platforms out there at the time. You had to really rely on your publicist at a, at, a, at a publishing house. You had to rely on that marketing department at a publishing house. And who were they going to promote? Probably the authors with last names like <laughs> King, like Patterson. <laughs> because guess what? They're like the Avengers. They pay for everyone else. Uh, my, luckily, my book paid, you know, was, was profitable right out of the gate, which is unusual um for a for a first novel in particular but uh but now you have a you have more options out there if you want to build it as a business uh and so that's what i did so i embraced that i didn't really realize until maybe a month or two i think before the book came out it came out in march of 2018 i did my first instagram post on i think it was december 24th or 25th of 2017 um but as i crept up on that i realized that hey this is now a business it's a startup in particular. Uh, it's like being, having a computer company in 1978 in your garage. So the product has to be the best that it can possibly be. And that's the book. So all your heart and soul goes in that. The product has to be the best that can possibly be. But guess what? Now what? If you want to continue to do what you love, well, people have to know that this thing exists and they have to purchase it. So now what? So you adapt. And uh, just like on the battlefield uh, and on the battlefield, typically you're, as you know, you're looking for gaps in the enemy's defenses to capitalize on momentum. You're looking to adapt because the enemy's doing that to you. Uh, well, same thing in business. And I'm, I, I say I'm like, I'm a terrible businessman, but I'm a good entrepreneur. Uh, and I think there's a distinction between those two things. Things. Um, so being an entrepreneur means that you are going to take advantage of all these different opportunities out there uh, to grow essentially a business, a brand, a readership, an audience. Uh, and what did that mean? Okay, that meant podcasts. That meant uh, being on them and creating one on my own. Uh, that meant engaging on social media. And what I love about that is I get to thank people. Because if you're a Grisham in, let's say, 1993, or you're a Stephen King in 1988, when do you get to say thank you to people? Well, thank you, thank you letter. Thousands yeah. of th- thousands yeah, of handwritten thank you letters. America, exactly. And you can say at the end of the interview real quick, oh, thank you to everybody. Uh, really appreciate it. Or you do a book signing. And I think for those guys, the book signings got too big. But for a while, they could shake hands and say thank you to people. But that was it. Uh, a week-long book tour, a two-week-long book tour. That's it. Uh, well, guess what? Now I get to thank people uh, that engage with me on social media that say that, hey, I just got this book for uh, for my mom or for my uh, my cousin who's going in the Marine Corps tomorrow or whatever else. And I can say, uh, hey, thank you so much. You know, best to them. And so I love that I get to engage like that. But that's something that an author didn't have to do in the 80s and 90s because 
there was not, you didn't have to. So that takes away. So by, that's a long way of saying that what we thought was just going to be writing and sending a book to New York every year uh, has ne- is very quickly we realized that we're building a business at the same time. And that takes an investment of essentially what you did in the SEAL teams uh, and putting your heart and soul into this thing. No uh, doubt, man. And, and like, so that's I, taken a lot more well, look, <laughs> us as a family than, than I, we initially. I 100% guarantee you that the next Jack Carr, the next, uh, there are aspiring authors that are going to watch this podcast and watch everything that you do. And it's a good lesson for them, right? Like writing just ain't about writing anymore. Like you, it's about building a brand and a movement behind the things that, that you write as an author. It's about like when people buy a James Reese book, they're buying more than just the story. They're buying into a mindset. And if you're a young author and you, you, you want to write a book, there's really no better model to the watching how you've built out this business and all the pillars of that brand with James Reese and all these books that you have. Um, but it ain't just about writing, you know? Yep. And the other side of that though, is that I wouldn't worry about all that other stuff until you have the best product you can possibly make until that book is as good as you can possibly make it. I wouldn't waste any bandwidth worried about a website or worried about a social media presence or worried about an agent or worried about a publisher. Uh, no, put all of that that you just were thinking about those things into the book and making it the best. And it doesn't have to be a book, any product, whatever you're doing as an entrepreneur out there, uh, put all of that into making the best product you possibly can because it has to be the absolute best that it can be. Um, then once you have that thing, now start worrying about those other things. How do I get an agent? How do I get a publisher? Okay, now I got to do this, now that. Uh, but you have to have that book first, especially on well, the fiction side of the house for sure. Um, so you have to have that product. So um, so now that, yeah, that it is more than just the writing, but initially I think it has to be all about the book. Uh, it has to remain about the book. And that's why there's no free time. There's uh, That's why it's not, it's not like you just write up here and then maybe you do an and then you sit back and no, you're always going, always building. And maybe at some point, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you ever take the foot off the gas or not. I don't even know or or shift back to writing because uh, guys that, that came up in the 80s, 90s, uh, like John Grisham and Kate, like they don't have to do any of the other stuff because they're already established. They can just write and that's wonderful. But today's a little different. And what was great about coming in to the publishing world when I did, when we did, is that there's an authenticity touch point that wasn't necessary in the 70s, 80s, and 90s because you couldn't check on anything. You couldn't follow somebody. You couldn't, um, uh, it wasn't as necessary, I wish I should say. Uh, today it is. That authentic touch point is, uh, is of vital importance. Um, and being your true self. And I don't even, I couldn't even not be me. That would be exhausting. I'm exhausted as it is. I can't even imagine like trying not to be me like on a social media or something like that. That was just not possible. Um, but uh, it's about sharing that journey, but all, not just sharing the journey to say, look what I've done. It's sharing that journey to show that, hey, you can do this too. Uh, there's lessons in here maybe, there's good ones, there's bad ones, there's successes, there's failures, um, but uh, it's aspirational and it's inspirational at the same time. It's not just a place where you can say, time to buy my book. Uh, no, you're sharing the journey so that you can inspire that next generation, pass on these lessons, have a touch point to say thank you, um, have this sense of gratitude, which I wake up with every single day, uh, because without readers and uh, and listeners now on the audio side of the house, um, then then I, I wouldn't be able to do what I love. 
which is right. Um, so I'm just wake up every morning just full of gratitude that I can work the, the way that I do, that I can invest so much into what I'm doing. Uh, and that's all because of the readership, because of the listenership, and now because of people that are watching the show on Prime Video. Well, okay, so I got two questions for you yeah. before I let you go. Um, so Only the Dead, next book, right? When's yep. it coming out? So spring, we don't have an exact date yet, but spring of 2023. So it's, uh, it's getting close to being, getting close to being done. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's exciting. I know, and I know you're in the thick of writing it and I know that your readers are, are excited for it. And so if you're watching, uh, this, this podcast or this show or listening to it, go out and grab the terminal list and, and dive into James Reese, man, because it is, it is a wild freaking ride and you will not be disappointed. Um, okay. Second question. They're going to be a season two. Uh, we shall see. We shall see. <laughs> yeah. answer that. Hopefully we'll, we'll have some news soon, but you know, no matter how close you get to anything in, in Hollywood and uh, it can always come just crashing down. So I know it's so hard to get the ball across the goal line. appropriately, you know? Uh, <laughs> so even if you're right there, like until you're actually filming, uh, and even maybe when you're actually filming, like you're still like, hey, this thing could go south in a heartbeat here. So it's uh, it's important to manage your expectations and realize just because you had a, a phone call. So these days I have a lot of uh, phone calls with directors and producers for other projects and things like that, which is wonderful because I love the creative process. I'm learning so much. I learned so much about screenwriting. Yeah, same. I love it. This process uh, early on. Um, and so I got to see from inception, from uh, essentially selling the book to Chris and then what happens after that and then how how you get a director attached and a, a showrunner attached. And then luckily those guys wanted me involved. So Antoine Fuqua, incredible human being, Chris Pratt, the showrunner, David DeGilio, it was the four of us from the very beginning, putting this pilot episode together. And really when I say putting it together, me just learning uh, about this, you know, advising a little bit here and there, but really just a sponge, just learning. And then through the whole process, putting the writer's room together and then having those advising on all those, and then having those scripts revert when the writer's room goes off to their next projects. And then it's back to me and to Chris and to Antoine and the showrunner again. And then us working those things, continuing to morph them. And then just like the battlefield, when you're out there on set, well, guess what? What looks great on the table in your tactical operations center when you're planning, all of a sudden you get out there, you look around and the terrain dictates, uh, terrain and situation dictate that you're going to have to morph things. Or this actor that came in to play a certain character has now brought something else to the role that you didn't anticipate when you're in there in this static environment where it's climate controlled and everything is wonderful and it's all in your imagination. That person brought something to episode one, two, and three, which impacted episode seven and eight. And so now that has to shift in real time when you're on the set out there and you're scribbling away and you're making notes and you're thinking things through and saying, you know what? That didn't really play the way that we thought it would when we were back uh, putting this script together. That's not going to work. We need to change it. So, uh, so it's a very, it's very much like the battlefield. Of course, the you know the the uh, consequences of making a mistake are uh, a lot less dire obviously, but uh, it's it's the same in that you're adapting. You're constantly adapting. You're constantly evolving. You're constantly maneuvering. Um, so, And that's fun. You're constantly solving problems because really uh, when you're on the battlefield, as you know, you're a problem solver. You're an aggressive problem solver. Uh, same thing on set. Same thing in the pages of the novels. As I'm typing away, I'm aggressively solving problems on that page the same way we would on a battlefield, though, once again, you know, obviously not as dire. Uh, no consequences, really. Uh, if you mess it up, it's just you get a bad, it's a bad, more bad reviews or something. 
that's just how, it, how it goes. But, uh, but yeah, so that point being that process was so much fun to be involved with. I had such a great crew and I had so many people that came up to me on set who didn't have to that would say, hey, I've been involved in hundreds of Hollywood productions. None of them have felt like this. Uh, and that's really due to Chris and Antoine at the top and the tone that they set for everyone uh, out there. And so they inspired everybody from the person working in makeup to the stunt coordinator, you know, no matter who it was, they inspired everybody on that set because they came in with this attitude every day that made people want to be there and give their best work. Not like, Oh geez, I got to go work with this crazy director again. Or oh, geez, <laughs> this star is a nut. I cannot believe it. He only it. needs green M&Ms in the room. Yeah, exactly. So it was the opposite of that. And so many people came up to tell me that. And then so many people also came up to say, and this is really cool. Um, Hey, uh, my, 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 my daughter is going to boot camp tomorrow or my son's going on his first deployment. And so I always had a big box of books uh, that I took with me to this thing called Video Village, which is the producer area where you have your headset and your screen and you're watching everything. And so I always brought a huge box of books with me and I just, and I had other ones in my truck and I just signed books and just hand them out to people. Uh, it says, thank you. This was the least that I could, I could do. So, uh, so it was a great, wonderful experience, but uh, point being, that was another long way of saying there's other calls coming in now for all these other projects, but I manage my expectations accordingly and I'm just enjoying it for, uh, for what it is and constantly learning. Well, that's good, man. I, you're living the dream. And, I, and I'll tell you, it, well, first of all, it is kind of amazing uh, just how much goes into making an extraordinary film. Like, like as someone who, who watch, who have, I have an affinity for books and film and all that stuff, as I mentioned, but you go in and you watch it and you're like, that's a, that's an amazing movie. Like I, Top Gun Maverick oh, loved so that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but so much goes into it. And you just talked about it from the screenplay to the writer's room, to the filming, to the production, to the music. Oh. Right. And oh, yeah. Yeah, making yeah, sure everything afterward, you can ruin it in I, editing. I, and I know. Now, now I am so much more uh, forgiving. I'm always forgiving. Like I'm always when I'm watching a show and I see something, unless it's so atrocious uh, that I just can't ignore it and I get fixated on it. But I try. At least I give it my best effort to sit down and appreciate it for what it is uh, and gloss over fingers on the trigger, covering your butt, whatever it might be, whatever it might be. Um, but now I see how easy it is, even with the best in the business there every single day, uh, I see how easy it is to make a mistake and because there's so many people doing different things. And mm-hmm. even when you see like a still photo from set and it's like someone, they're pointing a gun at their leg and it's some star and they're like, uh, oh, geez, look at this. And it's like, well, that was um, some, that was a still and it wasn't from the show, but it made it out there in the promotional stuff or whatever it is. And it's someone that didn't know and it's the angle and they didn't know just to get rid of that one because it looked like this. But it was anyway, like the scope covers are on. Well, it was just like they were on because they were just before the before the scene. But that, that makes it as a still because it's a different group that's putting together the promotional stuff. So it's like so much that can go it. wrong oh my God. at every different stage of this. So now I'm like, anytime I see anything, I appreciate the work that went into it um, even more so than I did before. And I'm even more forgiving because I see how easy it is for something to slip through. Uh, so that's, that, that was definitely a major takeaway from being on set. Well, I'm, I am not going to lie to you, man. I, uh, you are not an overtly political guy and I'm not going to put you in that position. Uh, I, I am. And thank goodness, by I the way, t- <laughs> oh, yeah, I, 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 guess, I, I guess, I guess, I guess so. 
I mean, I get, I, I have such, such thin skin. Uh, you know, people think the seals, you know, it's thick skin and all this, you know, I get a bad review or I get somebody that's intentionally writing something horribly, you know, a personally, a personal attack and a review or whatever. And you know, they didn't read the book and that's just how it goes these days. That's the flip side. You know, that's the double uh, A. Yeah. Yeah. The I mean, age, <laughs> but also everybody 24 seven can shoot an arrow at you. Um, as you know, and I can't imagine in politics, cause let's say back, like when we grew up at the end of the day, a a politician could leave the office uh, or leave an event, go back to the hotel, go back to home, to family and be done till the next day until they picked up the paper the next day, maybe. Well, now that doesn't exist. Just like bullying in school continues past the time when the person leaves because they're still connected on social channels. Same thing for politicians all day Every day, even when you're asleep, people are throwing spears, people are telling lies, people are putting things together um, uh, that have an agenda that want to just paint things in a way that is just awful. And I can't imagine being in that position. And you stepped into that ring. And I have so much respect for you for stepping in to that arena and continuing the fight where it's so important. Um, because for me, I just get... I, I don't know. I just get gotta fight. You gotta fight for the country, like man. I'm good at like one side. I'm good at like the, uh, you know, just having a conversation type side, and you know, being accepting and forgiving. And I'm very good at the other side, the going to war side. But it's the middle side, like where Paul, where there's no consequences uh, for what you say or what you do or how impolite you are, um, and there's no consequences in there for those people. And that sounds like a horrible place to be uh, and a, an arena that I would not want to step into just because I know that I don't would not deal with it. Well. It's look, it, it's brutal. Um, you're right. And that's why I would say when the term, when the terminal list came out and I watched a lot of like progressives, like freak out about it. It the just, made me, it just made me want to watch it even more. <laughs> yeah. I think the bad reviews, like just like the bad reviews on Amazon for my novels, uh, help sell the book because someone reads that review and is like, uh, too violent or too much gear. And someone's like, Oh, I love gear. You know, I love the weapon stuff. I'm going to get that book. So the bad reviews actually help sell the book. And same thing. I think with the show, you have the daily beast out there. I forget what the headline was, but it was pretty like cis pretty white and, male revenge porn, the terminal yeah, list. And I'm like, I'm watching that. I'm watching that. <laughs> so it's something like that. And, you know, obviously they have an agenda and they don't like uh, the star of the show or they, you know, looked at my uh, Instagram and saw that I had a everyday carry thing on there. Yeah, exactly. And so they don't. So instantly, whatever it is, they don't they hate it already. They've already. They already hate the books. They hate the show. It doesn't matter. Uh, and that's just how it goes today. Um, but uh, but yeah, that was fun to actually use those in a positive way uh, to help promote the show. Uh, you know, why not? I love it. I, I mean, it made me want to watch it even more, and I know I'm not the only one. So, but Jack, thank you uh, for your time. Thanks for coming on Battleground. Uh, it means a lot to me. Um, and if you're watching, go buy Jack's books. Go watch the Terminal List. Uh, go follow him on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Jack's built an incredible brand uh, around James Reese and the and the books that he's writing. He's an avid outdoorsman, and and it's just awesome to watch your journey, man. Um, thank you for the time, man, and God bless you. Oh, thank you so much. But uh, first, go out and get Outlaw Platoon. Read that one first. That's, uh, that's the real deal. And, uh, and hopefully I'll see you again soon. But thank you so much for all your support from the very beginning. So thank you for your friendship. Sincerely appreciate that. And thank you for continuing to fight uh, even out of uniform. It's, uh, uh, without people like you doing that, this country would, uh, would be heading south in a, uh, a faster than we already are. So, uh, <laughs> so thanks, thanks for jumping in the fight. Yeah, you got it, man. And uh, we'll see you soon. Take care. All right. Later. Okay, everybody, that is a wrap. I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with the great Jack Carr. 
And as always, if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel or wherever you listen to podcasts. Battleground is a show for you. It's a show that cuts through all of the BS. We have meaningful conversations with exceptional people. This show is beholden to no one. No one tells us what to say or how to say it. This show is dedicated to helping to save our exceptional nation. So if you like what you heard, again, subscribe. Follow me on Twitter, Sean Parnell USA, on Facebook, on Instagram. Send me your comments. You know I read them. I respond. If you're listening to the podcast, share screenshots of it and tell others to listen and to subscribe. Leave reviews because that is really important as well. Um, and also, I just learned that like the YouTube videos as well, I didn't, that's like a thing with their algorithm. Um, not really sure how YouTube works. We're still trying to figure it out, but like the videos as well, because that helps bring those videos to the top of the feed. And as always, I am truly, truly grateful for your support. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you all. And God bless this exceptional nation that we live in. Take care. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. All-inclusive vacations make life easy with endless eats, bottomless drinks, and never-ending fun. So booking an all-inclusive vacation should be easy too, right? That's where Apple Vacations comes in. Book your all-inclusive getaway with Apple Vacations and receive exclusive perks at select resorts. You'll find the best deals to Hyatt, Zalara, Riviera Maya in Mexico and enjoy a selection of exclusive non-stop vacation flights. Turn on easy mode at applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Visit applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.